0: Many years ago, I was in a small museum in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, a museum dedicated to the crafts and lifestyle of the Amish and the Old Order Mennonites. I had a conversation with the manager of the museum, uh, clearly a man who loved our Lord, and I asked him, because I thought I knew the answer, but I wanted to hear it confirmed from someone who was in the church. If old order Mennonites sent missionaries out, sent evangelists out to proclaim the good news. And he said, no, we rely on a strategy of attraction. Kind of like Israel in the Old Testament. Attraction. Attraction. What's that supposed to mean? What what did he mean by that? Well, today's sermon text provides an answer, an answer that is relevant not only for Mennonites in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, but relevant for non-denominational Christians in Lake County, Illinois, and Kenosha County, Wisconsin. So I'll invite you to open God's Word as we have just sung To Deuteronomy chapter 4, we are nearing the end of our series on Deuteronomy, a covenant of love. We have jumped around a bit, not taking chapter by chapter, verse by verse in consecutive order for a variety of reasons. Today we come to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and verse 1 says, Moses speaking, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Last week's message, Choose Life, looked at Moses' final, third sermon in Deuteronomy and his challenge to the people as he set before them two paths from which to choose, life and prosperity Death and destruction, and urge them to choose life. Well, here we see that in the beginning of the book, in his first of three addresses, Moses is concerned with the same issue choosing life. He wants them to follow God and God's ways carefully that they might live. And I don't think that he primarily had in mind eternal life in heaven. The world to come does not loom as large in the Old Testament as it does in the New. It doesn't seem to have been on the forefront of Moses' mind or other prominent spokesmen of Israel. And I don't think that Moses was thinking primarily about physical life when he said, follow God so that you might live, although it is true. That virtuous living often leads to longevity, other things being equal. But what Moses is talking about here in verse one of Deuteronomy 4 is what we might call life with a capital L, life as it was meant to be, life as God intends it to be for his people. Human flourishing, a good life. we know? what counts against a good life. We know that things like workaholism and disobedient children and family breakdown and marital infidelity and injustice in court and lying and stealing and coveting do not lead to a happy life and those are in fact the issues that are addressed in the Ten Commandments. God wants his people to have intact families, to keep their marriage vows, to be honest, to do justice in court, to observe Sabbath, to be content, and so on, because he wants them to live. So God's people, living God's way, will flourish. Verse 2, there's a warning. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. It is a perennial temptation for God's people who do basically honor God's word to add some things to it or to subtract some things from it. This happened in the history of Israel. By Jesus' day, the two main religious parties were on the opposite ends of this spectrum. The Pharisees added hundreds of rules and regulations to the law of Moses The Sadducees, on the other hand, took out of the faith most of what had to do with the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, or in angels, or spirits. So down through the centuries, the people of God and the professing people of God have been tempted to either add things or subtract things from God's word. Cult groups often elevate to the status of scripture, the writings of their founders, and even orthodox Christians can sometimes, well meaningly but still wrongly, add things that are obligatory, impose on God's people and their consciences, things that are not in the Bible, like you can only use one translation of the Bible, you can only worship God with one style of music, and and so on, they add things. And then of course there's always the temptation to take some things away from the Word of God. In our time the temptation is strong for churches and church leaders to mute those portions of God's Word that are currently politically incorrect. So you'll have pulpits where pastors do profess to believe every word of the Bible and Confess that it is authoritative, but never say anything about the parts of the Bible that might give offense. But I think Moses would say to us, not just to his original hearers, that God's people, living God's way, will neither add to nor subtract from God's word. And and then in the next verse, verse 3, there's another warning Moses says, you saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal, Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor, but all of you, verse 4, who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. Moses is referring to an incident recorded in Numbers 25 where some of the people of Israel were seduced into sexual immorality and idolatry by their neighbor nations. Baal was a fertility god. And so, as was often the case in the ancient world, the worship of fertility gods and goddesses involved licentious sexual immorality. Some Israelite men had sex with Moabite women and God had to deal severely with his people on that occasion. Is this warning relevant to God's people today? (laughs) The accessibility of pornography right there on your phone. Cohabitation accepted as perfectly fine. Extramarital affairs glamorized in movies and magazines homosexuality and and gender bending, normalized. God's people are not immune to these cultural pressures. So we need to heed not only Moses, but the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the Thessalonians, it is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins. And friends, this is not an area on which we can just agree to disagree because Paul goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God. God's people Living God's way will avoid sex sin. God's people living God's way will flourish. God's people living God's way will not add to or subtract from his word. God's people living God's way will steer clear of sex sin. And now in verses 5 through 8, we come back to the place I started at. Attraction. What did my men and I host at the museum mean by a strategy of attraction? Well, here's a text he could claim in support. See, Moses says in verse 5, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully... For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear all about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today. God's people living God's way will be attractive. Moses says, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, that if God's people will live God's way, others around them will observe and say, man, these people have some depth to them. They seem to have figured out how to do life. And and Moses hopes that they will notice and and say, unlike us, these Israelites seem to be near to their God, to really know him. And he actually answers their prayers. And, And then look at their moral code. I hate to admit it, but it's better than ours. It's just. It's right. It makes for human flourishing. God's people living God's way will be attractive. Now, did it ever actually work out this way? (laughs) Yes, but not always because often Israel blew it. Israel failed to keep covenant. And so their compromise with the surrounding culture muted their witness to our monumental God. And the neighbor nations didn't recognize any significant difference between Israel and everybody else. But sometimes Israel got it right and did attract the attention and the admiration and eventually the faith of neighbor nations. They were called God-fearers by Jesus' time. Gentiles who did not undergo circumcision and other rites and become fully part of the covenant community but nonetheless who were drawn to the worship of Israel's God. In fact, We even meet a couple in the New Testament pages who were officers in the occupying Roman army who recognized the superiority of Israel's monotheism, who recognized the superiority of Moses' moral code, and who became worshipers of Israel's God. They were attracted by God's people living God's way. One scholar puts it this way. The law was not explicitly applied to the nations, but that does not mean it was irrelevant to them. Rather, the law was given to Israel to enable Israel to live as a model, a light to the nations. That's what my Mennonite host was talking about. Attraction. Now, it must be said that the New Testament does not permit the church to rely on attraction as its sole or main strategy. Compared to the Old Testament, the New Testament is missional to the core. Where there are hints of mission in the Old Testament, the New Testament says unambiguously, go. Don't just wait for the unsaved to find you and notice you and inquire, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are a missional people. But you don't have to choose between one strategy or the other. It is still true. It is still true that God's people, you, the church, living God's way, will be attractive. As a teenager, Colin thought of church as a a foolish delusion for old people. But then he encountered some other teenagers who really loved Jesus and the church. And and he didn't know what to make of that. He, He just didn't understand it. But he couldn't deny that they were happy, and he wasn't, He couldn't deny that they seemed to have purpose and hope. He didn't. So he agreed, somewhat reluctantly, to go with some of them to a church camp for a long weekend. And up there, he had his eyes opened. Began to understand what made the difference. He heard for the first time the gospel of a God of love who in Christ did everything necessary to reconcile unworthy people with the Father. And that by simply accepting as a free gift this gracious offer of life, he could be part of God's family and enjoy the joy and the purpose and the hope that his teenage friends were enjoying and he believed. And his life was changed. And over time, he helped other members of his family come to faith. Attracted. Attracted by God's people living God's way. An atheist, I read about, is raising her daughter to be an atheist. And an interviewer asked her, would you be okay if when she grew up, your daughter decided to join a church? Well, yeah, I guess so. I can't say I'd be thrilled. Unless she was so messed up that the church actually helped her. Does that ever happen? Churches helping messed up people? Maybe I should put the question differently. Do we messed up people ever help messed up people? (laughs) Justin was kind of messed up. Then he was befriended by Pastor Smith who had him over to his home any number of times and Justin loved the way this pastor's family cared for one another. Something that he only had dreamed of because his family was broken. It was the only kind of family he'd ever experienced. He writes, I was attracted to a family that eats dinner together, laughs together, talks together. And he was attracted to the gracious God that made that family that way. Attraction. For a decade and a half the Fuller Seminary School of World Missions studied the patterns of Muslims conversion to Christianity. And they asked many of these converts what was it that convinced you that Christianity was true? Here are some of the most cited reasons given for conversion to the Christian faith. Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which women were treated as equals. Christian on Christian violence was less common than Muslim on Muslim violence. The prayers of Christians had healed the disabled and delivered others from demonic powers. As they read the Bible, these converts became convinced of its truth. The converts were attracted to the idea of God's unconditional love. Christians practiced what they preached. God's people, living God's way, will be attractive. Now, you don't need me to tell you that it doesn't always work this way. There are radicalized Muslims who want to kill Christians. think it's their duty. There are secular people who hate Christians and what we stand for. All you have to do is look at the headlines the last few days and see how the pro-death crowd is reacting to the Supreme Court decision and to churches and crisis pregnancy centers. It doesn't always work this way. There is hatred, animosity directed toward the people of God, but God still works through this strategy that matters so much to that old order Mennonite group of attraction by the real deal, genuine God-centered living. Jonathan, if you had asked him during his college days, what is a church? would have said, it's a bunch of people who want to follow Jesus, which is exactly why I don't want to be around them. But after graduate school, when he moved to a new city and started his career, a Christian co-worker told him about a church he ought to visit sometime. And although John really didn't have, Jonathan didn't have much interest in church or Christianity, he was feeling a little guilty about the lifestyle he was leading. And so he thought, well, maybe I'll go to church and see if that relieves my guilt feelings. So he went one Sunday morning. And he went back that night for a Sunday evening service. And he went back on Wednesday night for a Bible study and prayer meeting. And then he did the same thing the next week. And the next week, and he says there were two things that kept him coming back. One was the preaching. The pastor there preached the Bible unapologetically, even the hard parts. In other words, to go back to Deuteronomy 4 and what Moses says we ought not do, this pastor did not subtract from the word of God, even though in some texts it would have been easier to do that. Jonathan was intrigued, respected the man for that. So that was one thing that kept him coming back, the preaching. The other thing was the people. One family invited Jonathan to their home for breakfast every Saturday morning in a Bible study. Uh, a retired couple had him over for dinner. So did another couple. The commitments and love of this congregation offered him a different vision of life. He had always lived for himself. These people seemed to live for God and for others. They talked about God as if they knew him, (laughs) which kind of reminds me of what Moses says. What other nation is so great is to have their gods near them. Like our God is near us. Here's an answers prayer. By the way, there's a book published a decade or so ago called America's Four Gods. Despite all you hear about people losing faith and the new atheism, according to reliable polls, over 90% of Americans believe in God? What God? <laughs> Well, these authors talk about four models of God, four kinds of God that people believe in, and one of them is called the distant God. The God who must have existed because it's the best explanation for everything we see made, but then he kind of left on vacation or something. He's not involved anymore. You can't know him in a personal way. He's just an explanation for the world as we know it. The distant God. And the researchers in this book found that when agnostics and atheists say they don't believe in God, it's the distant God that they don't believe in. Jonathan found himself in a community of people where not only was the word of God preached, but people actually seemed near to God. His own testimony is that he was attracted by the preaching and the people, a gospel word and a gospel society. So what do you think? I think God's people living God's way will be attracted. I invite you to pray with me once again. Father, we began earlier in the service singing, make us salt, make us light. Well, we mean that prayer. Not only for our own sakes, that we might live life as you intended it to be lived, life abundantly, Not only for our children's sake, although that's a huge concern in Deuteronomy and in last Sunday's text, but for the sake of people who are observing, people who don't yet know you in a personal way, people who may yet be attracted to you, to your word, if only your people will live your way. But we are frail. We are pulled in many other directions by the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we need help if we're going to live the vision of Deuteronomy 4. And we ask you for that help. We beg you for that help. And again, not only for our sake and our children's sake and not only for the sake of those who we hope will be attracted to you, but for Jesus' sake. And it's his name we pray and let all his people say,